There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. Hello and welcome to History Hack. It's Meryn here. I'm flying solo again today. I have with me the delightful, delightful Jenny Grant. Hello, Jenny. Good morning. How are you? I'm absolutely fabulous as always. Now, let's do a little bit of background for people who haven't met Jenny. Jenny is a postgraduate researcher at QMUL, that's Queen's Mar- Queen Mary's University of London. And you specialise in the role of Polish armed forces in the West. And you describe yourself above the parapet as a northerner in exile, a historian, teacher, feminist, mother, Babcha's granddaughter. We're going to come back to that. And I can also tell everybody that, like me, you believe in ignoring post-camping piles of washing. You are a woman after my own heart. But today we're going to um, talk about, you're going to introduce us to one of the, the, the names that we hear a lot about in the Second World War, but we often hear about him in passing. Uh, this is Le- Lieutenant General, Lieutenant General Stanislav Mas- Maciek, Maciek, how would you like to pronounce it? So, uh, Stanislav Maciek. Stanislav Maciek, okay. Infamous Polish tank commander, whose division, first Polish armoured division, um, and that was the, if I'm right, the only motorised division of the Polish army. Yeah? Yeah, the only complete one. The only complete one. But they they were instrumental in the liberation of France. And and that, if you had to to nail it down to a tweet, Stanislaw, he he was pretty key, wasn't he? Um, And the work he did and the way that he shaped the way that his division ran was um, instrumental in, in liberation of France. So even before we get to, to what he was doing on Second World War battlefields, do you want to take us back in time and tell us a little bit about the man, okay, and what we should know about his pre-war career, or rather his pre-Second World War career? Yeah, so, I mean, Maciek's life is, I mean, he's an incredibly interesting chap, but also his life kind of, mirrors what happens to Poland through to 39 and, and then afterwards. So he's born 1892 when there is no Poland. Um, it had been partitioned in the 1790s. Um, he's born in the Austrian section, Galicia. Um, he, his grandfather's Croatian because he's part of a, a multinational empire, but he's brought up in his Polish family. Um, and then he's very fiercely nationalist in the sense of he's part of sort of Pilsudski's Rifleman's Association. Um, you know, he's completely imbibed all of the sort of Polish nationalist literature of the 19th century. Um, but then when the First World War starts, he's drafted into um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Now, he'd actually been, um, he was a student at the time at Lwów University. Um, he's doing uh, philosophy and Polish philology. So he, he says that, you know, as the war breaks out, he's studying expressions of sentiment in Polish literature, which isn't, you know, it's not your standard, is it? Um, <laughs> and then he, um, he's, he's drafted in, he has his training, and then he gets specialist mountain training. 
Um, so we see him fighting in the Carpathians. We see him then on the Isonzo front. Um, oh, he's in yeah, in Italy. Um, he's injured um, a couple of times. He spends time out sort of uh, training other um, soldiers in mountain warfare tactics. Um, he completes his degree. And then he rejoins um, the front just as we get to the summer of 1918. Um, and then as it looks as if, you know, uh, that the war is about to end, he sort of, you know, he, he literally skis to freedom from the top of whichever mountain he was on um, and, and reaches the newly independent Poland. Um, and then we talk about, you know, sort of we, we go with, you know, 1919 and then we lead into the Paris Peace Conference. And at this time, Poland is sort of fighting left, right and centre with, with five of its neighbours for the next year. There's five further wars. Um, so he's uh, primarily fighting um, against the Ukrainians um, in the first one. Um, and then he's part of the sort of Polish Bolshevik war as well. So he doesn't really have a chance to sort of pause till he gets to sort of 1921. And then he has this moment of going, well, this wasn't the path that I chose. He said this in an interview later, you know, um, I didn't choose a military career, events kind of chose me. And he's got this opportunity to, you know, maybe go back to studies. He's, he's an incredibly academic chap. Um, you know, he's, he's focusing on, um, is it Sebastian Petrzycki, um, who translates Aristotle in the 17th century into Polish. You know, he's, 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 you know, he's a good lad. Um, but instead, he decides to actually go um, down the military route. Um, and there's sort of quite a lot of debate on, on why he does that. So, um you know, you've got this newly independent Poland, so you've got that sort of, you know, patriotic wave. Um, I think crucially also, he, he started the war as one of war, four brothers, um, and three of them, including his twin brother, actually die um, either during the First World War or in the fight and afterwards. So he's got this huge emotional burden. Um, and one of the things that really marks him is that everybody says how emotionally intelligent they don't use the words at the time emotionally intelligent he is how sensitive he looks after his soldiers and so forth so he's very much sort of grounded in this grief but also this 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 cause um so although he's involved in sort of storm maneuvers um fighting the ukrainians particularly his actual then career progresses he's um, mainly involved in um infantry until we get to 1938 so so he's an academic He's academically oriented. Now, this, this is interesting to me because if you've got a nation that is starting to establish itself, one of the things that a nation needs to do is draw on cultural references. Because basically, if you've got millions of people who are trying to establish their own identity, let alone push back somebody else's idea of whether or not they should have an identity, then those people are more, they're going to be more conducive to following somebody who has an idea of what cultural leadership looks like and who can explore different philosophies and perhaps apply his learning to, to shaping a force, shaping people's opinions and getting people to, to, to work together to collaborate. So actually, when we look at his, his background up to this point, that's formative, isn't it? In the way that he is going to then work with troops, this idea of a man who is learned, who understands cultural references and philosophy, this is going to be formative in in how he comes to the Second World War. He will have he will have an idea of what he is born to achieve. So if we look at perhaps um, 1939, September 1939, how does he come into an active role in the war? So 1938, he's um, given the um, command of the Motorised Cavalry Brigade, which will be the only complete sort of motorised brigade and the, the Poles field. Um, because they're incompetent. I mean, they're, they're sort of the, the seven TPs that they're able to field are, are more than um, an equal, you know, in terms of firepower for, for the German tanks. Um, but it's the sheer numbers that they just, they, you know, they, they've got about 100 to field. Um, so he's then... Um, um, the Motorized Cavalry Brigade is very transitional. It, it, it is cavalry moving towards motorization. Um, and then as now the cavalry have this certain reputation with the land and, and he's never really been part of that. So he talks about, you know, um, in his memoirs, his, his, his concerns, his nervousness about how to set the tone in his first speech. Um, and he basically goes, right, pony boys, I will deal with your, you know, Elan and bravado. But, you know, as long as you pay it back in blood on the battlefield. Um, yeah. And then later he goes and, and they said this was good. So, so he's, he's fine. But I, I like that sort of almost insecurity of how, how do you set that tone? He's um, motivated, though, isn't he? he? He understands how to motivate men. He's very, very 
Good. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's um, a book by Piotr uh, Potomsky that's found all of the um, reports that are written um, by the military on him and, you know, the sort of um, recommendations for promotion and so forth. And when he completes a training course um, and there's the, the common themes. I mean, one of them is he really cares about his man. Um, the other, he's very good at training. He's excellent at the rules and regulations. Um, but I think there's two other crucial elements. One of them is that he's very, very intelligent on the battlefield and very decisive and shows great initiative. And the other mentions, all of them talk about his great physicality and um, that he's very physically active. Um, and we see this throughout. I mean, he's, he's getting, I know, late 40s, early 50s, dear God, and um, by the time we get to Normandy. But, you know, he's very much in the front, sleeping under the tanks and, and so forth. Um, so, yeah, he, he's absolutely... You know, so he's there in action on the first day. Um, he's, you know, there is no surprise element to the German invasion. I mean, intelligence reports have been, you know, showing massing of, of German uh, troops for, for weeks. Um, and then he's been actually in the... Hmm. Yeah, just this is something that, that, that winds me up when people say, oh, it started in 1939 and went to... No, this is not something that happened overnight. The Second World War did not just start on a Tuesday. It, it, it was building up for a long time. And to, to say that, oh, we never saw it coming, is, is just wrong. It's just wrong. It had been brewing for over 20 years, really. Um, at the moment, I'm reading um, reports, uh, 1935 media reports. So um, Hilsudski, who's the, sort of the Polish leader slash dictator of and, and nobody at the time knew quite how to describe neither. And he dies. And then um, at his funeral, you basically have all of these sort of European leaders come in and using it as a sort of opportunity for, for you know, soft diplomacy as well. So everybody's trying to assess where the ground lies um, in the 1930s. Um, a really interesting book um, that everybody should read. It's by Bernard Newman. It's called Peddling Poland. So Bernard Newman's um, one of these sort of journalist types, travelogue types. And he, he does Poland on his bike. Um, and he, he says, you know, basically the flashpoints in 1935 are the Polish corridor um, and Gdansk. Um, and these are the two real anomalies of the Treaty of Versailles that didn't really make any sense. He says these are going to be the flashpoints and he comes up with solutions to them. Um, but that's exactly where we are when we get to, to 1939 it, it's you know Polish corridor um and then once you've got the, the Polish uh, sorry the Nazi Soviet pact it's it, you know it's assuming that, that this is going to follow um I mean the key takeaway for, for the Poles is that their understanding was that the British and the French would come in that they would only be facing the Germans that they were buying them time to mobilize and it is one of the tragedies that you know, they they don't really. They declare war. Uh, they drop some leaflets. Um, obviously, you start off with a sort of war at sea. Um, but the Poles very much feel betrayed and hurt and all sorts. I mean, when when Britain declares war, you see all these beautiful sort of cheering crowds outside the British Embassy in Warsaw. You know, long live England and so forth. Um, and to get over all that by the time you get to the summer of 1940 is big so this idea that the polls you know that they, they hark on about sort of betrayal and so forth they can be pretty pragmatic as well um but yeah it's, it's one of those where you just think we really needed to have that conversation nailed down didn't we on exactly and the polls try they're like well okay so you can't commit the navy but um you know how, how about the army well there's not that many units in france oh well and then they assume it's going to be the air force um i think yes that, that was a conversation that needed to be had um so where am I? I'm completely lost now. Um, Don't worry. And I'm going to pick up on something that you said there, because we were talking about pragmatism. And I, and I, I want to explore this for a moment, because we're, we're talking about Stanislav as being a man who un understands how to um, shape a fighting force. We're talking about him being um, academically oriented, exceptionally bright. But through that level of insight about how to achieve things i'm also getting a sense of of national pragmatism about what was possible we even if people had understood how to achieve great things there was a pragmatism about you know what in the face of this enemy there's only so much we're going to be able to achieve unless we go and get some help so we we moved to a point where Correct me if I'm wrong, but we, we end up with almost an exiled army, don't we? Be, yeah. Because staying 
is, is just going to be suicidal. It's got to be a case of, okay, not retreat, but let's rally round and be pragmatic. We can't do this on our own. So can, can you just talk us through what happens with, with, with the military? Yeah, so, I mean, very quickly you have a breakdown in communications, which doesn't reflect necessarily badly on the polls. You see exactly the same thing in, in May 1940. Um, but the, the commander-in-chief basically takes himself off into the field and is very hard to reach. Um, and you get Sosabowski and you get Matic talking about how they're trying to, you know, they have to go and try and find out what the orders are. And very quickly it's clear that Matic sees his role. And again, he's sort of defined himself a sort of fight in a rearguard action and moving towards the idea is that there would be this this stand in the southeast near um near, near the sort of Hungarian uh, Romanian border yeah, yeah um and then they are ordered um to then cross into the border now you've got about three options then by that point and, and magic prides himself that this isn't the case for his unit lots of men would have been um, sort of separated, I mean, the course of it, and then peeled off to go back to their homes um, to defend their families. You get people like Sosabowski, um, who never really wants to leave Poland. His, his wife, his son are there, but he is ordered to um, to leave um, and, and to, yeah. to go to France. Um, and then you get, you know, huge mass of the army, but then also huge numbers of, certainly the sort of intelligentsia, your academics your artists your journalists also leaving so actually this sort of army that forms um you know in france and then in the uk is as much made up as sort of radical journalists um you know you've got all these um the imperial war museum's got all these photographs these beautiful sort of woodcuts you know decorating the, the sort of nissan huts um so yeah so magic manages and as i say it's a source of great pride that his unit's basically intact with its equipment as it crosses over um, into Hungary. So in terms of escape routes, um, you can do it sort of individually through, you know, you've got not open borders, but, you know, an individual can 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 escape. There are ways um, to get across. There are ways to get through. So you get people directly going across Central Europe. Um, more commonly, you, you've got a few people, well, a few units that managed to make it to the Baltic states, so they then get swept up by the Soviets. Um, and then you've got Hungary and Romania. So um, the government um, and the military command cross over to Romania, assuming they could then progress to France to, to rebuild this army. Um, and they're actually interned um, because Romania's got an agreement with the Germans. And now Hungary's got something similar, um, but they very much offer to turn a blind eye. So the vast majority of troops that managed to escape come via Hungary. Uh, they find various routes. Um, they get all the sort of fake paperwork. I, I love that the embassy basically becomes expert at producing fake documentation. Um, and ideally, you want to you want some sort of you know they're all mechanics or engineers, and you want to be above forty five because that's you know when when you'd be drafted. Um, and you either make your way then via various routes. And again, this is one of the lovely points. You've kind of got this idea that these driven poles are off to reform this. And they, they take the time sometimes. You've got photos of them posing by the Acropolis or having lunch in Rome and so forth. Because um, there's an element of, you know, they're young men. There doesn't seem to be that urgency necessarily. And then they'll make their way over to France. But, I mean, you were talking about... Um, his sort of pragmatism. One of the things that I feel so sorry for is that every stage from that, he is trying to create a viable military force, but he's got no idea who is coming, how many are coming, which routes they're coming by. Um, so when we're forming this army in France, we end up with about 85,000 men, about a quarter of those are sort of um, Poles who had emigrated, um, either they had emigrated or the parents had emigrated to France. They didn't necessarily even speak um, Polish that well. Um, and then you've got the core of the Polish army. Um, but then you've also got all these volunteers as well that he's sort of whipping into shape. Um, so in France, it's very much a, a sort of, they're able to sort of put together these um, two infantry divisions. They put together this brigade that fights the Narvik. Um, but it's still very much a sort of, um, the vast majority of them are still bogged down in training as well, um, which is kind of why when they get to, the UK, a, a, there's a disproportionate number of officers because they'd been at the sort of, you know, um, the training academies um, over towards Brittany and so forth. So we're able to escape more easily. Um, but, it, you know, the, the story gets out that, the, you know, it was the officers that abandoned the men, which just wasn't 
the case. Um, and then these two divisions end up um, basically being captured by, by the Germans. And um, so only a quarter of the Polish army that forms in France is then able to make it um, to the UK. Now, Sikorsky, who's been commander in chief and the, the Polish prime minister, comes into a huge amount of stick. He nearly loses position. Um, he could have got the polls out earlier, arguably, um, but uh, Patan had said, you know, come on, could you, you know, in the same way that we, we, you know, the Brits were accused of not sufficiently appreciating the sacrifice of the French in backing their retreat. Yeah. Uh, you know, the polls are completely um, absent from the narrative of how they had actually protected the French retreat, which obviously then comes to nothing with the surrender um so the polish sacrifice is almost for nothing um and then Shikorsky does one of his little dashes to london and back chats to churchill and the key thing is not can we come to you it's will you carry on fighting that was his principal concern um and then obviously you get operation aerial kicks in which sort of transports them over so so i mean there, there's so much here we could be we could unpack and, and clear clearly this is more than one podcast um but you touch again on something there that I, I just want to explore for a moment because we've got this idea of um uh, not ghetto but um, um an, an enclave of poles who um don't have infrastructure behind them they don't really have organization behind them communication is disparate at best they are an evolving nation they're an evolving culture still at this point and i think we forget this we forget just how young New Poland is when it gets, you know, smacked around the head. And you've got all these guys are moving to France. They're moving across Europe. They end up in the UK. Now, I don't know if Maciek, he, I don't know how much English he spoke, but to, to actually have a military um, contingent take uprooted from, from a country that they, they, they barely know why they're fighting for it and coming to the UK, how did they cope? I know that's a big question, but in terms of language, in terms of culture, if they're, if they're still asking, are you going to fight for us? Do they have the opportunity to, to actually demonstrate what, what we want, to, what they want fighting for? Do they bring culture with them? Yeah, so, I mean, this is, um, I mean, the whole phenomenon of exiled armies is so interesting. I mean, I love it from the British perspective, you know, because obviously it's not just the Poles, you've got the French, the Norwegians, the Belgians and so forth. And then you read the cabinet meetings and it's like, who's arrived? Where are we going to put them? The French it's have a lot of deals. They end up, you know, being taken to the Greyhound racing at White City and, and so forth and to shows in London and the poor Poles are sent up to Glasgow. Sorry, no, no smirch on, on Glasgow, but, you know, tents outside Glasgow, whatever many fine offerings Glasgow has. Um, I, I can feel our 14 glass region listening. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Oh, um, <laughs> so, yeah, you've kind of got this, this challenge, and, and this is at the crux of it, is you need to work alongside the Brits. You need, you are an ally. You, silly 944, are going to be working alongside them. You're going to have standardised equipment, standardised training by this point, um, and, and so forth. But... On the other hand, you need to retain your national identity. The whole point is that you are. this is a temporary position and you are then going to be pushing back and you will be liberating your country. The idea that, you know, when the Poles magic in particular are pressing for the creation of an armoured division is because they see that they will use that to then liberate Poland. So, you know, it, it, it's, you know it's not quite 90% successful. They get as far as West Germany. Um, and then, you know, Yalta intervenes somewhat. Um, but that's their whole focus. So you've got, um, there's this really interesting woman, Jadwiga Harasowska. So she had been um, editor of a sort of uh, literary artistic magazine. And she comes over to Glasgow and very quickly sees the need to balance these two elements. So um, she introduces a sort of bilingual newspaper where she sort of promotes Polish cause. Um, she... We think it's her um, issues the sort of guidelines to um, English etiquette. So it's things like, you know, be punctual, don't, um, you know, mutter about other people behind their back. 
back, which it's across that this is a very polished thing, but the Brits will not like it at all. Um, she's saying, oh, dear God, don't do the heel clicking and, and the hand kissing because, because God, it's barbaric. Um, <laughs> I quite yeah, like a bit of hand kissing. I know, but all the women do. I mean, this is the crucial thing. So many of our documents are written by men just go, don't, and you know, we don't know why we're so successful. It's like you're in a beautiful tailored suit. You've got the romanticism of exile. You're trying to learn English, which is delightfully vulnerable. Um, and you do the hand kissing. I mean, I swoon at this point. It's just, um, so you've got that. In, but then you've got the, right, how do we keep up Polish morale, Polish identity? So obviously, um, you know, the vast majority are Catholic. You've got your regular masses and you've got your chaplains. Um, you've got your training together. And, and then you've got like, um, I mean, one of the elements you've got is how do you stop these Poles being bored out of their minds? It's, you know, you see all the photos of things like, um, you know, RAF pilots playing chess or reading newspapers. Well, if you can't read English, you can't read a newspaper. If you can't get hold of a Polish language book, you can't read. Um, so actually a lot of the early appeals are for things like dominoes or, or I was discovering um, jigsaws weren't a thing in pre-war Poland. So they, they suddenly become obsessed with jigsaws <laughs> and there's all these donations for people to donate jigsaws to the Polish troops. Um, and then you've got obviously the language issue where because they arrive in the summer holidays in Scotland, you get all these students and teachers volunteering to give up their time to do these crash English courses. Now, it's very much sort of varied, obviously, on where you were based and, and so forth. But I mean, got all these sort of lovely dedications to teachers um, of, you know, thank you for the long hours. So quite often they do language learning at the end of the day. Um, and it's the kind of the direct method of, you know, this is a knife, holds up a knife and, and so forth. Um, or you've got, um, again, a reading recommendation that everybody should read, The Polish Invasion um, by Pruszynski. And he's talking about um, a very sort of ambitious elderly English teacher who's talking about, you know, look at this, you could master the language of Marlowe and Shakespeare. And, and, and the best student in the class is one who's sleeping with this woman called Elsie. And, and the teacher's taking all the credit for his excellent English and, and you know, hold him up as a model for how good um, that the rest of them could be if they only tried harder. Um, so, yeah, you, it's just so interesting. And then you've got the food, um, which is brilliant. And uh, Sosabowski talks about, you know, they basically, um, after, you know, a week, it wasn't that we were ungrateful, but, you know, you guys could destroy potatoes. Could you just give us the raw rations? So then you've got fantastic photos of the Poles just peeling their own potatoes and putting them into something edible um, as well. So you've got a huge amount of sort of uh, cultural mixing. Um, and then you've got sort of, once the sort of immediate crisis is over and you kind of get into the autumn and, and the winter, you kind of got a bit of a stock take. So then you, you've got the polls looking at, well, actually, how do we travel around? How do we actually make this our home? So you get like the RAF um, and around sort of Newark where they, they buy these cars, these secondhand cars, and they get the RAF, well, the Polish Air Force mechanics to fix them up and they drive around the area. Um, the, I've got a diary by um, the, um, a Polish chapter in Scotland where it's all bus timetables, they get free buses. Um, so they, you know, they get off to Glasgow or Edinburgh for weekends and so forth. So it's very much about making it a, a livable experience. Yeah, you know, I, there's obviously the, the trauma of potentially having left family, wives, children um, in Poland, but in her, you know, you've got a, a huge number of a sort of young-ish men um, who are just trying to sort of make a, a new life and they're doing this for four years really so they're, they're having to actually sort of make it work and make it fun. You should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Okay, so we, what we've got is we've got an, an exiled army. We've got a community that's starting to, to come together um, against the backdrop of a society that's already struggling. Tell, let's go back to Northwestern Europe, though. Let's go back to Stanislav and look at what he's doing, because he's going to have to use some of these guys, isn't he, when he starts thinking about forming the armoured division, and he's going to have to be handling um, almost a disenfranchised community that's coming back to fight for the nation they love so much. So, so how does he approach that? Um, so, the, I mean, the army could go in several um sort of directions at this point. So they formed the first Polish Corps in Scotland. Um, it could be infantry, um, but it makes more sense. They've got this opportunity actually to get to make an armoured division. Um, Maszczek, bless him in his memoirs, just goes on and on and on about how we need an armoured division. This is the only thing that's going to allow us to actually face up against the Germans. Um, you've got the possibility of lend lease as well, so they can get the finances, which they would never otherwise have. Um, yeah. So um, they managed to then persuade the British to allow them to form in 1942 this armoured division. Because they're an exiled army, they need to negotiate things like access to training. Uh, they need the uh, access to resources. Um, there's a, a lovely snide little remark in Alan Brooks' diary where he meets with um, the Poles and basically they, they offer him caviar and schmooze him. Um, in return for, for tanks. And he says, you know, basically, I enjoyed their caviar and I kept my tanks. Um, and obviously, <laughs> that, that releases once we get to 1943, um, and we see them sort of moving off. But yeah, so you've got Maciek, who interestingly, although he's sort of forming his motorised brigade um, in France, that's not his natural niche. And there's actually much more experienced um, sort of armoured experts um, working alongside him, like Skibinski um, and Kuschutsky and so forth. Um, so, yes, so effectively you've got this huge deal of, right, we need to mesh with British organisation, British doctrine. Armour doctrine is evolving rapidly once it's actually formed, that they form um, this, this new 1st Polish Armour Division and they, they allocate their, their regiments and they come up with sort of the names of traditional Polish regiments. And they work out there's quite a lot of references to rivalry between the different groups. And he's just about got that sorted when the Brits go, actually, no, throw everything up in the air. We're going to reform how we do armoured divisions. So he has to do that again. Um, but it's very much that they, they um, are taught at Bovington, at Lulworth. They do exercises with the Canadians, with the French. So it's very much that they could then just be slotted in to the military effort um, in Normandy, as it will be. Um, and yes, you've got language issues, and I don't think anyone does it quite well enough. So, for example, the instruction manual comes in for the Crusader, and it's vast and in English. Um, but you get elements where they go to Bovington, and before they can, the officers can do their training, they have to sit an English exam. Um, but this kind of is an element where it's half-hearted. Once they're in the field, there's kind of an expectation that the Poles will look after themselves, and they will pact up the difference with liaison officers. Um, so when you get sort of Maciek actually meets Simmons, um, who is the commander of the um, Second Canadian Corps, um, they only meet four days before they go into action and their common language is actually French. Um, now Simmons is one of these Canadians who's actually fluent in French, he's born in Bury St. Edmunds for heaven's sake. Um, and Maciek is one of his about sort of six languages and he writes his memoirs um, in French as, as well. So he, he's much better. But yes, they communicate in French. And, and one of the amazing things is how that actually pans out language wise once we actually get to the continent. Um, and you get language cropping up in all sorts of places. Um, so yeah. I, I find that fascinating that You've got two, um, two forces coming together there through the medium of a third language and finding um, certainly a way to communicate each other and perhaps even... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. 
Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. And perhaps even just to be more effective because they found a, a way of talking to each other. But I'm also getting a sense that the, 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 the Polish armor division is born from pragmatism. It's born from intelligent direction and having to um, make the best of, of what it's got. But again, I'm coming back to this idea that a community of Poles integrates really quite well with the society, society in which they find themselves. And am I right in thinking that that possibly lends itself well to the idea that these guys are going to have to work quickly, going to work fast with troops that they don't know? Is that um, true? Up to a point. I mean, I, I think they very much, the perception is that the Poles are almost a sort of, they are a community to themselves. And although you were standardised to a degree, they will always be Polish. And so although you get the liaison officers sort of working across, um, they are very much seen as the Poles um, and, and so forth. So you get, there's a Canadian um, medium artillery um, group sort of embedded with the Poles, um, for example, um, through Normandy. Um, but otherwise, actual communication doesn't really occur to, to a degree. You get lots of sort of cross-cultural mixing. So when they actually do meet, but not necessarily, they, they tend to fight separately. Um, so, so yeah, so Simmons is very much, he's sending them off as a division. So Poles will do this and the 4th Canadian Armoured uh, Division will, will do this. Um, but you get, I mean, beautiful moments like when they get to Chambois and the sort of filet gap closes when they meet the American units. Um, and the Americans do the usual thing of getting all the cigarettes and chocolates out for these Poles that haven't, you know, sort of slept for a, a week. Um, but you've got interesting things like they, they're able to supply some ammunition to them, but not all of their ammunition is compatible. Um, and then you end up, because um, Gzielski is the most senior officer um, in Chambois, you actually get an American unit then sort of taking orders from him, which is quite an interesting uh, tweak. Um, but I think, and certainly you get this impression from Maciek's memoirs is that although he's touching in with Simmons, a lot of the sort of the, he has a huge amount of initiative in the field. So when he's, you know, yes, go in this direction, liberate this place, but you know, how he actually approaches that is, is uh, his, his um, sort of discretion, um, which is how he likes it. And um, when, when we get to totalize on August, um, I was sort of musing on this because Guy Simmons is a really interesting character. He's sort of a very, very young uh, to be having this position. He's far less experienced. He's got no frontline experience compared to magic. And I was thinking about, you know, uh, you know, I'm coming from a teaching perspective of, of people who are promoted when they're very young. And, and you've kind of got three types. You've got the guys that can't really believe it and nobody can, else can. And you've got the guys who have sort of natural authority um, and, you know, sort of people, they're a little bit, resentful but they kind of you know concede to it and then you've got the kind of the rest of us where they kind of try to micromanage and bend over backwards and do everything take that responsibility and Simmons is somewhere between the last two so totalize is trying to micromanage um magic who doesn't respond to that very well and you have basically this very very sort of um, big argument between magic and Simmons um about how feasible um this narrow front will be and then afterwards, when it doesn't um, sort of pan out, um, you have Simmons then berating both the Poles and the Canadians for letting him down, um, which isn't, to my mind, great leadership, but, but you know. Um, <laughs> and then as we progress, we see him given greater um, sort of freedom. And the position, the geographical position of the Poles matters, that they're, they're over towards the east. They can't really rely on anybody for a huge amount um, of support. Um, so when we, you know, which both place their strength and they can use their initiative over towards the east. Um, but when it comes to things like Hill 262, where they need to rely on ammunition airdrops, for example, um, that's when they're sort of bedded in. But up to that point, they've got much more sort of freedom of manoeuvre. So we, we could we could spend at least at least 45 minutes talking about fillets, about Hill 262 on their own. Perhaps you'd come back and do that because I, I know that you 
you know, you've got some insights as to what was happening there and why. Um, but let's come again to, to Stanislas and his role and how it changes. Because the Poles have, have got a role here as an army of liberation, but they become an army of occupation, don't they? So how does he, how does his style of leadership have to change to make that happen? Um, so he takes the Poles through to the surrender in 1945. Um, so 1945 is really interesting, when I say interesting slash tragic from the Polish perspective, because obviously you've got Yalta, the terms of Yalta are released in February. Um, and that throws the Polish role into question of why would we continue fighting when we, you've just given a third of our country away you know what about what's our sacrifice been for um and Maciek kind of describes these roles he meets with Kreira he meets with Simmons he meets with Montgomery about will the Poles actually continue to fight is there a um, reason and he comes back to, now yeah yeah is there a reason to fight yeah. and he comes back to the, the thing the only thing that's really been harnessed in their reliance throughout this which is yes the defeat in Nazi Germany is our principal consideration so he's there and he, you know, the Poles take the surrender of Wilhelmshaven. And um, I was reading just yesterday, um, there was um, some image of an eagle that was on um, the sort of naval base at Gdynia, which the, the Germans had taken and then they sort of reclaim it and hang it right back, um, which is quite a nice touch. Um, but yeah, so once you get to Wilhelmshaven, um, Magic then comments that, you know, and, and the Poles are now given this territory in West Germany, which is as far as we've ever advanced and hurrah. And um, he's only there for a, a short time, though. Um, he then passes over the command um, of the division um, to Rudnitsky. And then he goes back to Scotland, where you've got quite a lot of Poles who'd been freed from the Wehrmacht. Um, you've still, you know, forming as another army because Anders has this image um, that you would have this huge Polish force in West Germany that's then ready to go to to liberate yeah. Poland yeah, yeah um, which doesn't happen but I mean in tribute to him they effectively take over this German town and the inhabitants sort of leave shall we say um and you have this town called Machkov um is, is created named after Maciek um because obviously once you've liberated Western Germany you've liberated all these camps you've got thousands and thousands of displaced Poles with nowhere to go. So they end up sort of being brought into this town um, and given the sort of the welfare support and so forth. So he goes back to Scotland um, and, and that's really it. The war ends and then part of the, he loses his citizenship um, because of the new Polish provisional government um, and then remains in the UK in Edinburgh um, un until he dies in 1994. And he, he made a living working as a barman, didn't he? He didn't he didn't sort of live out his days as, as a glorious I was once a military leader. He had, had quite a humble retirement, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. So um, he leads this sort of double life, which is on the one hand, he needs to practically support his family. So um, he, he I think he does a number of jobs. One of them is, is working as a barman in a hotel that one of his men um, had, had purchased and was running um, but he's actually relatively close to retirement by that you know back when the retirement age was was feasible rather than um, so he actually sort of retires um, but all this time he's playing this very double role of being like the core of this sort of Polish commemorative community he's very active in the uh, Veterans Association um, he goes to sort of ceremonies at the Menin Gate um, he, you know there's quite a lot of photographs of him visiting Holland and, and Belgium um, and, you know, things like um, there's a photograph of him um, when there is a plaque revealed for Chopin's visit to Edinburgh, for example. Um, and, you know, he's visited by dignitaries from Europe as well. So he still, you know, sort of has that respect within the Polish community. Um, but obviously you've kind of got this, this tragedy that he can't go home and then chooses not to. Um, you know, he, he, he lives to see Poland freed. Um, but... When, when you've, you've mentioned several times that his memoirs have been a source for you, mm. are there, when we think about um, people's memoirs, I know there's, there's a huge discussion about um, when they're written, yeah. the, the, the fact that sometimes they are written from a, a first-person perspective all the way through, as in I'm, I'm not looking at the operational level, I'm looking at the bits and pieces that I was, I was involved in and there was nothing more to the war than this. How do his memoirs rank, as it were, and, and what kind of writing is it? What can we tell about the man from his own writing? 
that's a lucky question. That's, um, so <laughs> um, he, he releases them first in Polish and then they're translated into French. And he very much does it in response to people like Montgomery and so forth, this sort of rash of, of um, memoirs in the sort of late 50s, early 60s. Um, but he's not an Anders character. Uh, I mean, Anders burns everybody on every page. It's wonderful. Um, Magic's very tactful. Um, and it's, he's seen it very much as a sort of factual description. He calls, you know, his, his Polish um, one is called from, from cart to, to tank. So he's talking about, you know, when he first um, takes over command in independent Poland, his stormtroops are chaps with grenades in horse and carts through to tanks. So he's very much, I think he frames it as this is a book describing the evolution of Polish armoured warfare, which nobody's particularly interested in uh, brutally. Um, but there's also, so there's a very little bit about his sort of biographical elements. He does a huge amount trying to justify and commemorate the Polish effort and the Polish sacrifice. So Certainly when we get to Normandy, we get huge lists of prisoners taken. We get huge numbers of sort of vehicles um, captured and, and so forth, vehicles destroyed. And we get lists of, you know, the men who died um, in his cemetery. Um, but he's not, he's very tactful to the end. So he he's a man of great humour. So when he's describing the awkwardness of these discussions with Montgomery, with Simmons, it's like they would invite me to dinner and we'd get through to the coffee stage and talk about nothing. And then they bring up Yalta awkwardly. There's huge amounts of humour. He's been incredibly tactful throughout it. And he's not very critical of anyone. He's a little critical of Montgomery. He talks about, um, because when he visits, He's wearing his, you know, um, his driving gloves and his 18 scarves. And the poles are absolutely fastidious. Um, and they see this as a sign of absolute disrespect. And then you have the throwaway comment by Montgomery of, you know, when the men are together, do they speak Russian or German? And he, he saw this just as a complete sign of cultural ignorance and arrogance. So he doesn't make a great impression. And, and he's not a fan of Montgomery, but he's not awful about him and he's not awful about Simmons and to the point where you kind of wish come on just just let rip tell us what you really think um, and he, hmm. so, so, so this is interesting because we, we started out by um, referring to the fact that as an academic his study would, was of literature and philosophy so he would have had a period hmm. of his life where he was drawing from great works he was reading a lot he was studying he then goes through that period of um tactical precision of understanding numbers of men and and what i'm now seeing is that his memoirs try and combine that sense of a descriptive narrative and tact and erudite um, commentary on perhaps other people's cultures with the the military perspective of this is how many tanks we had and this is how many men and this is how, you know what our rations are like etc 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 so are they an accessible memoir if someone wants to, if if someone wants to actually get to know the man is it a very accessible memoir and actually is it translated into english it's not so it's available in polish Dang. on the polish website it's available in french and um, it's I don't know whether I'm violating copyright. You can find the, the text online, but then you run it through Google Translate and refers to herrings. And I think it translates him, his name as mackerels and so forth. So that's not, you know, I, we are, there is a, a Twitter presence, a Twitter movement to get these translated because they're, they're very good. I mean, equally, you've got people like, um, oh my gosh, um, Skibinski, for example, or you've got Kushutsky's memoir. So all these senior, um, generals um, in the first Polish armor division wrote their memoirs, um, but they're not in, in English. There are amazing books you can. I mean, I've got this beautiful book uh, with the tanks of first Polish armor division, or you've got from Kahn to Wilhelmshaven, um, or you've got Savini, um, who is the Canadian um, chap who's sort of embedded with the Poles. And so he writes in, in French, but that's been translated into English. So so no, and it's just such a shame. And But there's, there's also, I, I think, Mashi doesn't quite know what he's doing with his memoirs. He's, um, you get references to, um, you know, he gets to Ghent and he's making links to so many of our men have studied there. When he's progressing through sort of um, Ypres and the Somme and he's talking about, you know, he's seen all the military families from the First World War. But I don't think he really gives into his learning in that sense. Um, and then you see him sort of editing when he gets to the French version 
So you've got lots of references in the Polish ones. There's a bit more biographical information and you've got references to, um, for example, this, this um, the Lwówska um, Fala, which is this variety group, entertainment group, of these professional entertainers um, from Poland who um, sort of travel through the Poles and they're their source of entertainment and music and so forth. And he refers to these in the Polish version, but not the French. And he's kind of trying to guess what his audience wants. And, and it's kind of, yeah, it, the humour comes through, but I, 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 it, it's not a, almost a labour of love. He's, he's trying to do something for an audience. I don't think he quite gets it. He, he wasn't a writer by trait. He was a writer by, by tradition. He was following the examples, as you said, of memoirs that were emerging. But I'm, I'm also getting a sense that he had a sense of duty to, to, to put down on the page what he'd experienced for the benefit of the emerging nation that he'd, he'd helped to liberate. Jenny, <laughs> I, I know we could talk for, for hours and hours, um, not just about Stanislaus and, and the Polish Armour Division, but about several aspects of the Poles. Would you like to come back and talk to us again, perhaps about Fillets, Hill 262? Would love to. Yes, absolutely. In that case, we'll look forward to it. What I'm going to do is I'm also going to put together a list of some of the books you've mentioned, because you've mentioned, I think there are 10 or 11 titles that I think people will find really helpful to get a little bit more of an insight into what the troops were doing, why they were fighting, how they were fighting, and who they were following and who was leading them. Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us today. It's been fantastic. Lovely. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.